Well, you can open in your Bibles there to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, I mentioned in the welcome about men's Bible study, and about every passage we walk through, I think, man, this would be so great to teach to the whole church. I would love for the church to hear this particular passage. And so uh, this morning provides us an opportunity to do that. You know, during the holidays, we have people uh, kind of coming and going, and it's, it's kind of nice to have a little bit of a break here, uh, give people some time to do their travels, and then we'll hop back into the Gospel of Luke beginning next week. So I wanted to take this uh, New Year's Eve Sunday and think about Romans chapter 8, the end of it there, verses 31 through 39. Now the question, though, is like, if, if I think that about almost every text we walk through in Romans, why this passage? You know, as we seek to wrap up one year, look forward to the next, why would Romans 8 be appropriate? Well, I'll give you the premise up front. All right, and I'm going to borrow sort of the premise from another letter that Paul wrote where he said, the love of Christ compels us. All right, so, so the love of Christ compels us. That means that, that our understanding, our grasping, our growing in the knowledge of not, not our love for God, but, but Christ's love for us. The more we grasp and grow and understand His sacrificial love, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that that sort of compels him and urges him on to obedience and to love for Christ, right? It makes him godly. The love of Christ, understanding the love of Christ, Paul argues, sort of suffocates the self-centeredness that dwells in our hearts and runs so rampant in our lives and it urges us on to love and to serve God more obediently. And that's why I think it's appropriate for us to think about this text. The great love of God the Father. The great love of God the Son seen in Christ. That we might come to more fully grasp that and understand that. And, and, and then to grow into the image of Christ as we understand His love for us and the security we have in him. You know, you might think about it, you could just think about it really practically in, in relation to your Bible reading, right? A lot of us come to the end of December, beginning of January, you're thinking about what you're going to do for your Bible reading. Some of you have it as a goal to read through your Bible every year. That's, that's a good goal. It's not, it's not some kind of legalistic standard that God has for us, but that's a good, that's a good goal. And so as we think about the love of Christ compelling us, it, at least humanly speaking, it's ironic that the more you understand God's love for you in Christ and the extravagant display of that love in the cross of Christ and that, the, 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 if you've come to Him through faith, right, if you're trusting in Him alone, there's nothing that you can do that can shake that love that God has for you and the irony is, the more you begin to understand that reality, the more you will want to devour God's Word. The more you will want to be in His Word, the more you will actually persevere in those slumps where you're like, I'm just not feeling it. Well, what compels us on? It's not actually guilt or manipulation or legalistic requirement. It's understanding the love of Christ. Okay, so that's what I want us to think about this morning from Romans 
chapter 8. I want us to contemplate this inexhaustible love of God, love of Christ for His people. So really, we're going to take the text in two kind of swaths here. here you really could just have one point, but we'll, we'll take two and I'll explain why we have a second point when we get down there. The first point is this, the evidence of God's love, the giving up of His Son. Well, you heard Paul read the text, and you heard that he begins there with that question in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? And as uh, you know, a, a, a people that are sort of parachuting into the middle of Romans chapter 8, we've got to ask, what are these things? What does he mean? But what should we say to these things? Well, one, one thing we need to know about this passage and the, sort, the way it sort of lays out in the book of Romans is our text, verses 31 to 39, are sort of the climax of all that Paul's been arguing, yes, in the whole letter, but particularly from chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8. So, so you know, we could take time and, and try to really demonstrate this, but we'd, we'd be here all morning. Um, we can talk about it later if you, if you want to quibble about it. But these things are, are the wonderful truths that are then laid out in chapters 5 through 8. All right, the, these wonderful truths. And we obviously don't have time to go back to chapter 5, 6, 7 the, uh, through 8 and figure out, you know, sort of what are these things. I want to sum it up in three words that are sort of in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you just kind of have these three words in mind, you can understand what Paul is just rejoicing over. The first, the, well, well, let me give it to you up front. Peace, grace, and hope. All right, so chapters 5 through 8, what shall we say to these things? If you just sort of keep these three words in your mind, peace, grace, and hope. Peace with God, right? Not just, re- not just felt peace or peace out, dude. Let's, it's this, we're no longer at enmity with God through the work of Christ Jesus, through the substitutionary death of Jesus. As a result of, of that, right, as a result of the peace with God, Paul says, you now stand in grace. All right? It's like for the believer, for the one trusting in Christ, you are totally and utterly surrounded by grace. You can't send your way out of this, this grace. It's, it's, it's the very thing on which you stand and are surrounded by in Christ Jesus, and you cannot exhaust the grace of God. And therefore, you have hope. right? Hope that you are secure in Christ, all right? So it's like Paul then sort of, when we get to our text, he sort of steps back and he observes everything he's kind of masterfully laid out in chapters 5 through 8, and he says, man, what can we say about that? What can I even say? Right? So, so he kind of begins with that, and he, he answers in the form of a rhetorical question. So the second part of verse 31 is a question, but it's also an answer, if that makes sense. We'll see it here. It, it's, if God is for us, what can we say to these things? That we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, that we have grace available to us, that we stand on His inexhaustible grace, and, and that, what, what was our third word? Hope. We have hope that He will complete what He has finished in us. Right? What can we say to that? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? So, 
the, the idea of a rhetorical question is you sort of supply the answer, right? The, the idea is no one can stand against you. But you, one thing you can do, too, is you can sort of turn it into a positive statement, not just a question. So if we take it as a statement, it is God is for us. God is for us, and therefore no one can be against us. He is on our side. He is working for you. And obviously the, like, the us there is defined for us, right? If we think about the context of Romans chapter 8, it's actually defined for us a little bit earlier in chapter 8, where it says those whom he predestined, or those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the us and the text, we, we need to keep this in mind as we kind of walk through this passage. It's not that everybody in the entire world is, is us. God is for everybody. He, he's, he's the savior of, of every. It's not that. The us is God's elect people who have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I don't know the mind of God. How can I recognize the elect? How can I know if I'm of the elect, right? There's some, some hardship there, some, some wrestling that we do in our own minds. Well, he calls to himself all those who are elect. He opens eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He draws his people to himself. The elect, the, his sheep know his voice. They respond to him. So if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this text is concerning you. And he, he, he calls those who are chosen before the foundation of the world, and he justifies those who are called. Right? All who are called are justified. And all who are justified are glorified. Right? He justifies the called, and he glorifies those who are justified. There's this, so just think about it this way. There's this sort of unbreakable chain in the text, right? If, if you're justified, you will be glorified. If you're called, then you are justified. There's an unbreakable series of events that surely, if you've been justified through faith in Christ, that you can rest assured that you will be glorified. So sure is Paul that he sort of speaks in the past tense as if it's already happened. Those whom he justified... He also glorified. That's the us. Okay, that's the us in the text. And if he, is on, if he is on your side, if he is on our side, then Paul says, who can be against us that should truly make us tremble? Right, that we should truly be fearful of. So that sort of lays the groundwork for, for this passage. And Paul begins to set out this way then how can I know that God is for me? How can I know that God is for me? And here's how the way the text lays out. Paul begins to give us sort of several proofs or or reasons we can trust that statement. God is for you. Again, if you are in Christ, and if God is for you, then nothing can stand against you. The, The first proof that he gives really is one that kind of I think is meant to undergird all the others, right? Like the, the, the inescapable evidence, the, the thing that we can just trust in and know so clearly, the proof that underlies all the other proofs is that this, how can I know God is for me? He did not spare his own son. He did not spare his own son. 
the clearest demonstration of this truth that God is for you is that he did not spare his own son. And notice who, who, the, who the main actor is in the passage. It's God. You know, Paul, I think, is alluding to Isaiah 53.10 that says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So in, in Isaiah, Yahweh has put the servant to grief. It's not, you know, in the New Testament, we learn the servant is Christ, the God-man. But it's God the Father who takes the initiative. Jesus is handed over. It's not, he's not bull-rushed and taken against his will. Right? In fact, as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke, we've kind of continually drawn attention to God's sovereignty in the events that lead up to and include the arrest and the death and crucif- through crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Why do we keep making that point? Why does it matter that God is sovereign over that? Well, in Romans chapter 8, His sovereignly handing over the Son becomes the basis for how we can know he is for us, right? If this was some accident or things got out of hand, then that's no demonstration of love of God. But if he did that of his own accord, of his own will, it clearly demonstrates his great love for us and that he is for you because he did not spare his own son. Now, the the imagery of a father handing over a son can mess with us a little bit, right? We, we sometimes, when, when I hear son, it, messes, it can mess with me because when I hear son, I think of like my little kids, right? I think of like a small child. But that's not how we should think about the triune God, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's this sort of unhelpful illustration that's sometimes used to describe the sacrificial death of Christ. And in this illustration, there's even like little movies that they've made about this. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but this train is like headed for disaster. Um, unless the, the, the guy kind of operating the tracks, and I'm no like railroad expert, so I'm going to use all kinds of wrong terms here, but that's okay. So like there's this guy that needs to shift the tracks, right, in order for the train to go in the right direction. And if he can't shift these tracks and this train full of passengers, it's headed towards destruction. And just before he's just going to switch those tracks like he does every time, his son kind of falls down in this, like, gearbox thing. And if he now shifts the tracks, it's going to crush the son. And so now dad is in this really crazy predicament, right? Do I save my son and let everybody on the train die? Or... Do, you know, do I crush my son through pulling this lever and then everybody on the train is saved? And with great anguish, he sort of saves everybody on the, on the train and that's supposed to illustrate the gospel. Now, I would argue that's a pretty bad illustration, right? For a couple reasons. I don't usually give an illustration and say it's terrible, but you might think that when I give an illustration, but all right. Here's why. One is what we just said. In the illustration, the boy is like a little boy. Okay, he just sort of like, um, he doesn't know any better. He's, he's just kind of the sweet little child. Right? Jesus is not a kid. He is the eternal Son of God, all-knowing, all-powerful, God, very God. 
Okay, so when, we, when, when you think about the image of the Father giving of the Son, don't, don't lose sight of who the Son is. We're talking about Christ here. Also in the illustration, like this, the Son sort of accidentally falls in this gearbox thing, right? It, well, Jesus volunteered, right? Jesus chose the mission. He didn't accidentally find himself incarnate on that cross. Okay, and most glaringly, Right, The boy didn't have to go down in the gearbox to save the train. Right? In fact, him going down in there sort of compromised whether those people would be saved or not. In that scenario, the boy is just like collateral damage. But in the gospel, you have this direct correlation. Without the Son, the eternal Son, choosing to become incarnate and come to this earth, there is no salvation. There is no salvation apart from his death. There is no other way. But through Christ and through his death, voluntarily, no man takes my life from me, Jesus says. He lays down his life and therefore accomplishes the salvation of his people. So how can I know God is for me? How can we know that God is for us? He did not spare his own son. Right? From what? He did not spare his own son from what? Well, the Father did not spare His own Son from the full force of the wrath of God that belonged to us. Right? You might say He did not spare Him from one sort of minuscule amount of judgment. On the cross, there's no alleviation. There's no mitigation. There's no relief. The full force of judgment that should have come upon us because of our sins. And God the Father did not spare God the Son from that. And it's almost like Paul says, man, what more do we need? What more do we need? What else could God have done to demonstrate His great love and the fact that He is for us? He says, this is done for for us all. He did not spare His own Son. But for us all, He delivered Him up. You know, if you're in Christ, again, if you're trusting in Christ, you are not the exception to the rule. Right? In fact, it is quite prideful to actually look at what Paul says that God gave up his own son and say, but I'm not secure in him. I'm not secure in him. I can find my way out of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So through these like questions, what Paul does is he sort of, in a backhanded way, sets up this if-then statement, right? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then he will graciously give us all things. Right? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's done the greater thing, so you can bank on it. You can count on it. He's going to do the lesser thing. It is absolutely and utterly inconceivable that God would give up his own son for us and then not graciously give us everything we need. That's Paul's argument. He's giving you everything you need. And you can know that and you can bank on that because he's given up Christ. He has not withheld Christ from judgment he has given him to you, for you, then you can, you can bank on all things that come into my life are necessary and needful for me. Right? So, so when you think, you know, it's possible to like rip a passage out of context and God will graciously with Christ give us all things and we sort of define all things however we want, 
it's it's a nice new car, nice new house, whatever, you know. But man, as you think about Romans chapter eight, it just shows you like the trash that the prosperity gospel is. The all things is defined for us. He, he again, if we were walking through it from the beginning of chapter eight, you you would have ringing in your ears Romans eight twenty eight, for we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. So the all things has been defined for us. It's, it's everything the Lord allows into your life, and He will use that to bring you safely home to Himself. One commentator said it this way, God will give us everything we need, including suffering in this life, to conform us to His Son and to preserve us until He finally glorifies us. That means that everything that comes into our lives will turn out to be a gift for our benefit. In this life, we can count it all joy and suffering and trials because He's using it to conform us to Christ. And it reminds us to look forward to that day when we are fully and finally glorified. And John the Apostle says, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So we we spend a lot of time on that proof, right, that he will will not spare his own son because that sort of, everything else we're going to say is sort of built on top of that. All right, so how can I know God is, how can we know God is for us? Well, he did not spare his own son. The second thing Paul says, how can we know God is for us? Well, no one can bring a charge against you, against us. Look there in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, he uses this form of questioning to make his point. Who can bring a charge? That's sort of judicial language. Right? The idea is that there's, there's no charge that can stick because you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. Right? The idea is that not that people can't bring charges in the present. Right? Maybe you've been accused by family or friends of being filled with hate because you don't believe a man can just declare himself a woman or vice versa. That's, that's considered... You're extreme, according to Psalm, if you, if you believe that, if you believe the Bible on that. Well, maybe you've been charged with bigotry. Maybe you've been accused of being hateful because you, uh, you believe and you're willing to say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father except through Him. That's considered a hateful message. Maybe you've received charges like that. Moreover, we see in the Bible that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. You saw what he said about Job. He only serves you because everything's going well. And then things aren't going well. Oh, he only serves you because he's healthy. The point is not that nobody will bring an accusation. It's that it won't stick. The idea is this, uh, at, at the judgment seat, right? When, you, when you're before Christ, there's no accusation that can stand. Why? Because Christ died. He took the charges. And they were nailed to the cross. And we can bank on that because, in fact, they can't stick. Because the elect will be called and the called will be justified and the justified will be glorified. 
It won't stick because of what we call justification, right? That's a legal declaration. It's to be declared righteous, not based on your own works or efforts, but because of Christ. The charges can't stick and won't stick because of what Jesus accomplished for us. A crediting happened where your sin was credited to Christ and his righteousness was credited to you. So therefore, no charge, no accusation can stand. In fact, verse 34 makes a similar point. Who can condemn? So the third proof, you might say, no one will condemn us. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So bring a charge, condemn. These are, again, you're, you're talking like legal sort of uh, a language there. We are guilty before a holy and righteous God, but Jesus Christ has taken on our guilt, and now if we are in him, we've been declared righteous. No one can condemn. Right? And so what Paul does is he sort of teases that out with four statements that I think kind of build to this crescendo. Right? So... Why can no one condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died, he says. No one can condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That reminds us of Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Right? It was by his blood that we are justified. It's through his death that we are declared righteous. And if we've been declared righteous, we can know that we'll be saved from wrath. There's no more wrath to be born. So it's, no one can condemn. Why? Well, because Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was the one who was raised. Right? He didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay underneath the penalty of sin. In fact, when you think about the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ cannot be separated. Both are necessary to accomplish our salvation. In fact, both are necessary to accomplish our justification. What the resurrection does is it ser serves to authenticate that the work of Christ is, is finished, that it's done, that it has achieved that which Christ set out for it to achieve. It is proof positive. If Jesus came out of the grave, proof positive that justification has been secured for those who have faith in God. And that God himself has raised Jesus from the dead because the penalty for sins has been fully paid. He is the one who's, who died. He is the one who has been raised, who is at the right hand of God. He, he, he's raised eternally. Okay, We've talked about like somebody who came back to life miraculously like Lazarus. He, he was raised in a different way from Jesus. He died again. Okay. Jesus was raised, and he's at the right hand of the Father, ensuring that the verdict for which he died is applied to us at the judgment, because he's not going anywhere. He has been highly exalted, right? Not only resurrected, but highly exalted to the right hand of the Father. And interestingly, when Jesus is, is exalted, the New Testament kind of, it, it treats that as sort of the the shame of all those other powers that tried to defeat him, right? Demonic powers, Satan. He was, he's been exalted. 
He's triumphed over them. He's at the right hand of the Father. So as you think about this, Christ at the right hand of the Father and all the things that Paul's about to mention here that might, might harm you. Well, Jesus is over those things. He's above those things. He's defeated those things. He's defeated and exalted over every hostile power. And beyond that, he's been given authority in heaven and on earth. And so every adverse circumstance, he is sovereign over as well. He's the one who died, he was raised, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us. The the sacrificial death of Christ is something that he completed in the past. The ascension of Christ is something that happened in the past. But right now, even now, he is interceding for us, acting as our high priest. So intercession is, is sort of the coming between two people, making the case on behalf of someone else, right? You sort of make the case for one party to another party. So what we have in Christ, the very presence of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, right? The one who died, the one who was raised, the one who uh, is at the right hand of the Father. That's the testimony. That's the testimony that we need to know that He is able to save to the uttermost. His very presence declares that His work has been accomplished. I don't think the idea is that God the Father is just angry all the time and Jesus has to be like, time out, God, like remember the gospel, like I did this thing. It's not that. And so His very presence just announces that it's done, it's, it's finished. And so for you this morning, the sins you committed today even, the sins you will commit tomorrow, they will not shake God's love for you. They will not shake His forness, right? He's for you. And that cannot be shaken because Christ is at the right hand making intercession for you. So the sort of salvation that Paul talks about is not like filling up the gas tank and it sort of sputters out if you're not careful. That's not salvation. Jesus saves fully and completely. His sacrifice is the guarantee that all God's elect will continue to find acceptance at at the right hand of the Father because Christ is there interceding for us. It's the guarantee that we will one day be glorified with Him. All right, so we see clearly, right, the verdict is sure. You see this legal language in verses 31 to 34. Um, God's love is clearly on display and justifying us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 made, made that really clear even before. God demonstrates the love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul mentions not just the love of the Father, but the love of Christ in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So point number two this morning is the endurance of God's love. The endurance of God's love. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, in one sense, Paul just kind of continues to develop his argument. Right? There's, not, there's not like a grammatical cue here that we need a new, a new point. But I think there's, there's sort of a thematic shift in a sense from this forensic language to relational emphasis, relational language that emphasizes the love of Christ. But don't, don't as you kind of think about the structure of the text or the structure of this sermon, don't, don't try to do a huge sort of distinction between justification and the love of God. Right? You're not going to pull those things apart. Justification is the evidence of 
the love of God. So even though we're making a, a point, a, a new point here, a point number two, we're not trying to drive this wedge between justification and God's love. God, as we said, has clearly demonstrated his love in the death of Christ. So God's love is seen in the gracious giving of his Son. And if that's the demonstration of the love of God, then who can separate us from that? Right? That's Paul's, again, the development. Who can separate us from that? No one. No one or no thing. Right? The idea is that no opponent can come against you that's powerful enough to separate you from the love of Christ. In fact, as you think about that list that he gives there in verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, those are the sort of things that you, you hear talked about in the New Testament. Satan loves to wield these things to try to devour the faith of God's people. He wants to destroy them the way we talked about even with Peter. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to bring about pressure and persecution and trial to destroy your faith. Right? Read Revelation chapter 2. Satan's going to throw you in jail. That's what Revelation chapter 2 says to a specific church. But don't let that destroy your faith. And it, I mean, they're just going to be put to death. So persecution and martyrdom are going to come against you. Is that enough to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus? So that list are like these, these threats. And as we look at them, if we're not thinking biblically, we think, man, maybe that's the thing that could sort of divide me from the love of Christ. Maybe this trial or this suffering that's coming down the pike that I don't even know about is the thing that will be the evidence that I need to just be convinced that God does not truly love me or that he has abandoned me. Maybe that will be the thing that causes me to walk away. Well, God encourages us here for the elect, for the called, for the justified. God encourages us here that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And if you look at the, the list, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, you can compare it with some of the things that Paul says he went through over in 1 and 2 Corinthians, and he's been through it all. Right? So Paul's writing from experience. I know that these things will not separate you from the love of Christ because I've been through this. The only thing he hasn't done in that list is a sword. And he will face a sword. Right? From, I mean, he did face a sword. But he knew to live as Christ and to die as gain. Right? So not even the sword can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not, not e even death. The last enemy can do that. So then verse 36, it feels like, if we're not careful, it feels like kind of an interruption in the flow of thought. It seems like maybe we should just put kind of brackets around that. Maybe he's just trying to like throw in a parenthesis there, kind of clarifying something. But really, he's doing something uh, important for us as believers. The quotation of Psalm 44 is, is accomplishing this for us. It shouldn't be surprising when the righteous suffer. Right? Verse 36, as, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Suffering for God's people is not a surprise. 
That's what Calvin said about this quote here in his commentary. It says, It is no new thing for the Lord to permit His saints to be undeservedly exposed to cruelty of the ungodly. So he's just making the point that this list, you may not be in it now, but you you will suffer, and it's not a surprise. And if you can look back at the psalmist, and if you can look back at Paul, and you can look back at saints throughout the history of the church, and, and you can see that they went through the things on this list, and they were not forsaken, then we can have confidence that we too are secure in Christ, secure in God's love. Paul says, not only can these things not stand against us, but we are actually more than conquerors there in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Some of your translations may say, we prevail completely, or we are winning a wondrous, a glorious victory. We overwhelmingly conquer. It's like, what, what, what He does, He takes this word for conquer and He attaches a prefix to it. It's like, we, we overwhelmingly conquer. We're not just conquerors in these things. And we conquer not by escaping these things, but but he says you conquer through these things. What's going on? How can we be a conqueror when we face the sword and the sword prevails? right? Or when we face persecution? I don't feel like a conqueror when I'm on the run. Well, what's going on? Well, God uses what is intended for evil to accomplish His purposes for us, to conform us to Christ to make us like Jesus until He finally glorifies us. And the end, like those things that we fear, those things on the list, the distress, the famine, the persecution, the trial, the hardship, those are the things that that God wields to even use to, to push us down the path to sanctification and eventual glorification. Again, leaning on Romans 8, 28, they work for our good. One church father said it this way, Yet those that be against us, I love this, so far are they from thwarting us at all. Right? There are those who stand against you in Christ or against Christ. So far are they from thwarting us at all that even without their will they become to us causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings and that God's wisdom turneth their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. Even those who stand against you, even those circumstances that are hurtful, even persecution, God uses it for, to accomplish His purpose in you, to conform you to Christ and to bring you safely home to Him. So then verse 38, it sort of gives us the ground of this assurance. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as as you look at that list, you you notice they come primarily in pairs, right? There's only one word that kind of stands off on on its own and is not paired with something else. Death and life, angels and rulers, things present, things to come, height, nor depth. Right? The idea is like we could, we could go through and kind of define each one, but the, the idea is just to pile these things up and to make the point, nothing, nothing, not angels, nor rulers, 
Nothing in the past, nothing in the present, nothing in the future. Nothing can come down the pike that's going to change God's view of you. No height nor depth, no obstacle whatsoever will stand in God's way. Nothing in heaven or nothing in hell will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And some try to get really picky with the text and say, well, yeah, nothing out there can do it, but I can separate myself. Are you, are you creation? Because nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can cause you. None of these things that, that, that Paul mentions here can cause you to walk away from him. You see that then nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Right? It has been supremely demonstrated in Christ, and it is unshakable, unassailable, never wavering, because it is God's commitment to us, not ours to Him, which secures it. All right, let's end this way. So I was watching this documentary a while back, right? And it's about these two climbers. They're on this mountain, and, and it's so dangerous, they're kind of roped uh, together. And so that way, if one slips, the other one kind of save, save the other one, right? And so these, these two guys climbing this dangerous mountain, they come across this terrible uh, storm. One climber slips and kind of falls into this, I call it a crevasse. I don't know, some people call it a crevasse. I, I think they're stuck up, but... I'm just kidding. Um, but the storm was so bad, like the winds are so high, even though they're roped together, they can't communicate. They can't hear each other through the howling wind. And the, so one's like dug in, one guy's hanging off the, the crevasse there. And, and finally, the guy's like, he's got to be dead. He's not moving. I, I don't, so he just cuts him loose, right? Surely he's come, succumbed to his injuries. He's exposed to the cold. Like he just had to cut him loose. Right? And miraculously, like the whole point of the documentary is the guy actually survived that got cut loose. He actually kind of survived because he got cut loose. But the point of the story, the reason I want to say it is this. When you think about the way that God views you, what do you think about? Is he just sort of barely hanging on to the edge of the crevasse? Or you're sort of dangling over the edge and he's powerless to kind of save you? He's powerless to pull you up? Or is he just about ready to cut the rope because, man, you're just too much to bear? Is he shaking his head? Is he constantly disappointed? Is he on the verge of giving up on you? Well, this morning we get a much-needed reminder that we are completely secure in Christ. Right? Chapter 8 opens with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with, There is no separation. There is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost. And that's the sort of love that compels us to love Him, to cherish Him, and to worship Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do love You, and thank You for Your kindness, Your grace. Thank You for Your love for us. Thank You that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from Your love that You've demonstrated us in Christ. Forgive us for taking that lightly. In Jesus' name, amen.